0: On this episode of AvTalk, Gavin Werbeloff steps in for Jason as we dig into the numbers around some recent aircraft orders. And we send Jason to Hamburg for the Aircraft Interiors Expo. I'm disappointed that they didn't open the chilled champagne bottles that were directly below the cookie. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, and not here for the first time with Jason Rabinowitz. Jason is off in Hamburg, Germany at the Aircraft Interiors Expo and we're going to hear from him a little bit later in the show. Today I am joined by by Gavin Warbeloff, who is a contributing writer for Runway Girl, a professional numbers guy, and we'll get to that a little bit later in the show, a wildlife photographer, and a good one at that, and an avgeek uber nerd. Gavin, thank you so much for uh, sitting in the other chair and joining us for the show.
1: Thank you for having me. I can't believe it took you 29 episodes to get rid of Jason.
0: I've been trying since episode two, and it fi- I, I had to send him to Germany to do it. <laughs> but we did it. He's gone. Oh, wait. With, he's, with he's no coming thanks back to British and
1: Virgin Atlantic.
0: Yeah. We're going to have to have him explain why he did that in the next episode. But he did some interesting booking things. As he always does, I feel like anytime he travels, I know we're in for a good story because it's going to be screwed up somehow. Yeah. I mean, just don't ask him about Tap Portugal. Never, never. There are a few things you don't ask, Jason, about tap Portugal and making his bed. But we'll move beyond that and just dive right into some news of the week with the big news for air traffic, or at least it sounded like big news, and it turns out it's not so big, is ESA, the European Aviation Safety Administration – or agency issued I mean it sounds very important a rapid alert notification that was published by Eurocontrol which is the umbrella organization for air navigation in Europe that the Eastern Mediterranean and Nicosia FIR is operators should exercise due consideration when planning flights in that area so the Nicosia FIR is basically centered around Cyprus and the alert notification was in reference to a escalation in rhetoric and possible airstrikes or cruise missile launches from the eastern mediterranean into syria. and so they've said there might be missiles, you shouldn't fly there. that sounds very ominous, but the reality is that there weren't very many flights in that area to begin with. very few flights, n- no Outside commercial carrier besides Middle East Airlines transits Syrian airspace. And they have now said that they're going to not transit Syrian airspace and started today. We're recording April 12th. They said starting today they're going to fly around. So they've added basically 30 to 45 minutes to their flights that are east of Beirut. They're a Beirut based airline. And so they've added. You know, 30 to 45 minutes, they now fly around through the Sinai Peninsula and through Egypt to get to, to where they're going to points east. And Kuwait Airways has said, we're just going to cancel our flights to Beirut for the time being and see what happens as far as the situation progresses. Most of the general media took this as saying, no one should fly over Syria, and they're clearing out the airspace." And that had already happened. It's been years. I don't even know the last time that a carrier besides Middle East Airlines and and carriers based in Syria flew over Syria.
1: Yeah, you know when things started up and getting bad, and they've been bad. I can't believe it's been seven years. Everyone just sort of stopped serving Damascus, and it kind of stayed that way. You know, Lebanon has its own colorful history, and it's uh, MEA is is home is that's their home base, and you know they're comfortable flying in and out. But a lot of the traffic had dissipated out of there already. It's not like there had to be be tons of reroutings or changes to to operational plans.
0: Exactly, and some of the other airlines that that service Beirut and and Tel Aviv generally, they have decided to instead of flying back to Europe north across uh, Cyprus, they've just decided to go south and around. Those aren't new routes. They're just consistently choosing to do the southern route back to Europe now. So it's not like there there was some sort of massive recalculation among the global airline population to change routings here or anything like that. So I think the news was more a reminder than anything else. But it'll be interesting to see what happens, if anything, in that area. And as well as how long this particular notification or, or alert stays in place. the The original listing was for seventy two hours, but we'll see if that that continues or is is reissued. But definitely keeping an eye on it. But it's to say that it's you know brand new and and huge news. I, I think was a bit overblown, especially by a lot of traditional media that saw a warning as as you know as a prescription against air traffic, where it was just kind of a exercise due consideration just keep your eyes on this.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of that went along with, you know, the the UN Security Council was discussing what the goings on in 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 Syria, in particularly in Homs this week. Uh, you started to see some more serious rhetoric coming out of London and Paris regarding what's been going on in Syria. And and it started to come out of Washington as well. So it makes a lot of sense that they started to give everyone fair warning because we don't know what's going to happen. And it, you know, whatever does or doesn't happen could be happening right now.
0: Right, right. And that's, it's certainly something that everyone needs to be aware of. But I think that the way it played, at least the way that I was fielding some requests from media and things like that was that, you know, Air- Syrian airspace is suddenly all clear, and it, that's certainly not the case because it's been that way for for years. And so that's something that I, I think is important to keep in mind that this isn't something brand new. It's just a continuing you know effort to to keep everyone safe. Always a good thing. it's exactly. just something you know to be aware of. At the top of the show, I mentioned that you are a professional numbers guy. So let's talk about some numbers. American Airlines placed an order for 47 new 787s, replacing their aging, I won't call it elderly, but aging fleet of 767s. They took or will take 22 787 8s and 25 787 9s starting in 2020 and 23. And then they added 28 options on top of that order. And so I set a bunch of numbers. Gavin, if you'd be so kind to explain any and all of that.
1: Well, I think there's some important backstory to all of this. So a few weeks ago, there were stories put out that Airbus was saying, we're, we're not going to be winning the current American Airlines wide body competition. Boeing is going to places with its pricing that we're just not willing to go. So before American and US Air merged, US Air had placed an order for 22 A350-800s, which over the course of the development of the A350 program, that particular model has pretty much been – it's gone. It's There are no more active orders for it. It wasn't very popular to begin with, and Airbus sort of convinced everyone who had ordered it to convert – their are ordered to something else. The, the sort of loan, the last holdouts were Hawaiian, who a few weeks ago announced they were canceling that order and ordering 787s. And US Air, I'm not sure if it was a US Air management or American management who are the same thing because the management moved over, converted that order to a hundreds. And that order has been pushed back a number of times. The first deliveries were initially supposed to be this year. Well, the, the last round, they were supposed to be this year. So Airbus an- announced that they were not going to be winning that order. And then on th- Friday, late in the day,
0: yeah, very um, late in the day,
1: we got this announcement that American had ordered 47787s. And I don't think that was a terrible surprise, but there are a number of things about this order that are very interesting. First is the number of 787-8s, which is you know 22, and I think American already operates 20. That's a really big fleet of 788s. And that has not been the greatest seller. You know, John Osterhauer is the best person to explain this. But while the 788 and the 789 look very similar, underneath the skin, they are very, very different airplanes. And for its size, the 789 is lighter and a, and a better overall performer. because United is using 7879s for Houston, Sydney, and LA, Singapore – which are really, really long stage lengths. Air New Zealand just announced they're going to be flying Auckland Chicago direct. These are really, really long flights, and that's a the seven eight seven nine is a really, really efficient plane. The other interesting piece of this goes back, and we're going back to October of two thousand and eight when American's initial seven eight seven order was placed. And just to give you context. The 787 was famously rolled out on July 8th, 2007, 7807. Didn't fly for the first time until December of 2009, and there were a number of development delays. You know, A lot of the first 20 planes were known as the Terrible Teens because they needed a lot of reworking. October of 2008 was a very dark time in the 787 program and the very not very happy Boeing plant in Everett or Boeing headquarters in Chicago. And American announced an order for 42 planes with a further 58 options. And the timing is, is important because American had a lot of leverage. They were a stamp of approval. And I wouldn't go so far as to say American had to have that order. Sorry, Boeing had to have that order, but it was an important order for them. And we you know, can surmise that American secured very, very attractive pricing. And they didn't just secure the pricing of the planes that they ordered. They also secured the pricing of the options. Now, as years go by and those options remain outstanding, there are escalations and those options might expire. But you know the the base price of the planes of those options was based off of what the order was at so fast forward to now and boeing made a point to say that this was a brand new order and not an options exercise which was interesting because american had 58 options they could have exercised 47 of those to buy all these new planes So, when Airbus said that Boeing was taking the pricing to a place that it couldn't go, there was an assumption on my part that this was simply because American was exercising options and the pricing had been locked in 2008. But we come to find that this is actually a brand new order. So, is there a reason that, you know, what deal was American getting on these planes? How, you know, was the point to take airplanes off of the Airbus order book by giving American unbelievable deal? We really don't know. But the other interesting thing is that the order was announced very late on Friday, and it was an accident. Yeah. Ameri- or was it? Or was it? Well, American had their hand played by Boeing because Boeing, accidentally or not accidentally, we'll never know, uh, tweeted out about the order.
0: And then remo- what, Was it a tweet or did they like post? I I thought they had posted like a, a splash page on their homepage or something they like that. They might and have. It, I think it got picked up.
1: Yeah, and then it, it, but then it got taken down. But at that right, point, right. the cat was out of the bag. So American Ooh,
0: screenshots live forever. Exactly.
1: Ask Jason about that. So at that point, American had was chose to acknowledge the order. Forbes had an article out in the days after that said that this was all a mistake, that American was actually waiting for Airbus to make an announcement of the cancellation before they announced the Boeing buy, which is interesting in and of itself because I have never seen an instance where an airframer went out of its way to make an announcement or press release about a canceled order. And the closest thing I can think of is when Virgin Atlantic's six A380s were on sort of a perpetual deferment and everyone knew that they were never going to be delivered, but the order stayed on the books. And lo and behold, that order was converted to A351 thousands. So we haven't seen any announcement from Airbus, but it really begs the question well if they were going to announce that this was not just a cancellation but a cancellation and conversion or a cancellation new order what would that be for because american already has an order an outstanding order with airbus for 100 A321 neos and none of those have been delivered yet and they just announced that they weren't going to take airbus wide bodies so
0: what could it be? Well, that's one of the really interesting questions about this because this the news that kind of got buried in this order was that Americans also deferring deliveries of 737 Max indefinitely, 4737 Max 8 deliveries that were due in the early 2020s. So that piques my interest because Airbus is still holding on. I assume they're still holding on to some money that – US Air paid for the A350 order. So there's a down payment with Airbus. There's a deferment with the 737 MAX, but there's also that outstanding. So, I mean, I don't, can you, I'm not an aircraft financier, but can you take down payment money and put that towards a couple A321 NEOs and then just kind of quietly let it drift away? Or is that continued down payment for something new? I mean, I, I guess that's something that we'll we'll have to wait and see. I have
1: no idea. The interesting thing about is that those 100 A321 NEOs, going back to the last time American made a big narrow body order, they did 100 737-800s to be followed by 107.37-8 Maxes, and then 130 A319s and A321 COs, to be followed on by 130 A320 NEO family planes. They didn't specify which NEO variant they would be getting. We've sort of concluded that they're A321 NEOs just because the 319 NEO has not been that popular and the 320 NEO sits in the same space as the 737 MAX 8.
0: Yeah, it's a very curious situation and it's something that I think piqued a lot of interest or or is maybe just, I think a lot of people said, oh, new 787 order, that's really great. But thinking about it this way is, so where's the rest of the money going?
1: I mean, airlines are not in the habit of walking away from deposits.
0: Let's put it that (laughs) way. Sort of watch this space. Who knows? We could talk about another deposit, so to speak. IAG just put a deposit down, perhaps, on Norwegian Air Shuttle, which is a fascinating thing to me. Um, this happened, well, this morning, really. So, IAG, the, the parent company of uh, British Airways, Iberia, etc., cetera, put a, a stake down in Norwegian and as kind of a precursor to possibly buying them out. I mean, we can only – who knows?
1: I mean, it's – It's fascinating. (laughs) Again, fascinating. The the, the answer is
0: always, who knows?
1: The whole scaring of the industry that Norwegian has caused, particularly in Europe, is fascinating. The sort of – the responses have varied from our favorite rooftop bar, June, to level – The creation of Level, which is another IAG subsidiary, which is getting below the surface on that one is odd because it's using ex-Iberia planes. And at least the last time I checked was using Iberia pilots with, I think, Vwelling or Iberia flight crews, but will somehow be transitioning to being operated by Open Skies when Open Skies shuts itself down next month.
0: For those listening thinking that the airline industry doesn't make any sense, you are correct.
1: It's hard to keep track of. You know, I remember having to wade through, not having to. I remember wading through French web pages with Google Translate trying to figure out where the air operating certificate for open skies was registered because the thought was it might have when this was announced that it might be a a brexit implication but no it's a french air operating certificate but it's fascinating because everyone's been trying to figure out how to counter norwegian and you know iag started level which you know their first which is a three thirty two hundreds operating primarily out of barcelona which is a Norwegian long haul hub, and I think the first two routes were Los Angeles and Bu- the
0: first was Los Angeles and Buenos yeah.
1: Aires. And there are certain things that don't make sense to me because once Iberia and British Airways and American got their antitrust immunized joint venture a few years back, Iberia started serving LAX from Madrid with an A three forty six hundred, and that flight never really caught fire. And, you know, it went from weekly to four times week, sorry, from daily to four times weekly to three times weekly and year round, and then three times weekly seasonal in the northern summer. And the notion that the customers that Level and Norwegian are going after are more time sensitive than cost sensitive is a bit odd because it would be far easier for. Iberia or level, or whatever IAG subsidiary it would be to simply price a one stop itinerary from Barcelona, changing planes in Madrid and getting on the iberia a three four six hundred that 's heading to Los Angeles anyway you know if that capacity's flying anyway, why is it necessary to start bringing in more capacity from a city that's thirty minute flight away
0: yeah i mean they IAG has struggled, and I guess all legacy carriers have struggled. I mean, you know, Lufthansa's been a little bit more insulated, but the Lufthansa group has also had to deal with kind of a a low cost insurgency. And so. You know, dealing with this, and we talked about this. Oh gosh, uh, I don't know how many episodes ago now when when Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren was aboard the first seven three seven Max delivery for Norwegian, and how new aircraft are kind of opening up even more of a hole in the you know previously well entrenched you know legacy carriers, where you've got new aircraft that can perform new missions. Like like you said, the seven eight seven nine is an extremely efficient aircraft and well suited for a lot of these routes, and Norwegian's got a bunch of them. And they also now have the 737 MAX that they're taking across the Atlantic, which is – you know, it continues to be a very interesting thing as far as a use case for new aircraft. So there's a sense of adding capacity, sure. But I think your point about is additional capacity necessary versus why not just price the flight differently?
1: Yeah. And I think the moves that IAG airlines have made to counter Norwegian have been a lot more pronounced. I mean – just thinking back, British Airways opened Oakland, uh, Gatwick, Oakland, Gatwick, Fort Lauderdale, and restarted Gatwick, JFK, to directly compete with Norwegian. And the fact of the matter is, in the airline business, the certain carriers have advantages and certain carriers have disadvantages. Historically, upstart carriers have a labor cost advantage. Because they don't have as, you know, the tenure of their employees is shorter. So, in terms of what their salary is, obligations for healthcare or pensions, they're all lower. And as airlines mature, sort of your cost per employee rises. The flip side of this is that mature airlines, as opposed to upstarts, Historically, have had a cost of capital advantage. They can borrow at lower interest rates. They can raise capital more easily because the implied risk is lower. And post financial crisis,
0: I'm getting real nerdy here. In the zero interest rate environment. We did promise that you were a professional yes, numbers uh, guy. We yes, did promise so that. We're just we're. This is new ground for us. So I'm, I'm enjoying it because Jason and I are decidedly not numbers guys. So it's good to have someone in who actually can explain these kinds of things.
1: I just thought you were trying to get rid of Jason. I didn't realize you actually wanted me.
0: That too. That too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you know, post-financial crisis with interest rates being held for so low, so long, we've seen that cost of capital advantage that the legacy carriers have had. Go away, and all they're left with is this labor cost disadvantage and so, from an you know all in chasm perspective cost per available seat mile, the legacies they've got a pricing floor that's higher than Norwegian because of their employee costs. now, Norwegian has been growing at such a clip, and they're pricing their flights so low that their break even load factor is much higher. Than a lot of other carriers. If you look at British Airways, you know, 15-year-old 777-200ER that they're flying from Gatwick to JFK, well, that thing's paid off. And even if it's not paid off, they're much farther along. The cost to keep it sitting around is much lower than it is for Norwegian's brand new 787-9. So there's a bit of a waiting game going on. And we've seen Norwegian have some really poor financial results over the last few months. I wouldn't go so far to say that that they're hemorrhaging cash, but they're really having a hard time filling these seats. And when you start out at such a low cost for the passenger to begin with- There's
0: only so far you can go. Exactly.
1: There's only so far you can cut before an individual flight is a loss maker, even at 88% full. So it's fascinating. I was listening to a podcast yesterday with uh, Holly Hegeman and even she called this a dysfunctional industry.
0: <laughs> if if anyone can call it a dysfunctional industry, I think she has yeah, the right to. You know,
1: she she also had the guts to call out Bob Crandall in a written letter, which I don't think I sure don't. <laughs> even though he's retired, I I don't. So yeah, it's fascinating. We'll see what happens. You know, but I was also sort of following this on. Should IAG go ahead and call it Envelop Norwegian? I could see particularly the flight attendants unions that represent, you know, Iberia, British Airways, Aer flight attendants start to get very, very nervous and aggressive because the flight attendant contracts, they are basically subcontracting out a lot of their flight attendant operations for long haul, or at least they were as of last summer. I'm not sure if that's changed, but a lot of that was done in a sort of roundabout manner for much lower rates than it would cost to hire the same flight attendants on a European contract. And so if this is the new way things are going to be done, I could see labor relations getting very fractious at IAG.
0: There are no fewer than 1.7 billion moving parts to this. And we will definitely keep on this because this could be a really big deal or it could turn into nothing because this is the airline industry and nobody is assured of anything. Let's take a quick break and throw it over to Jason and Seth Miller who are in Hamburg, Germany right now for the Aircraft Interiors Expo and they're going to fill us in on some of the things that are we're likely to see in airplanes in the near future and some things that are pretty cool but we'll probably never see. So, we'll throw it over to them and Gavin and I will be back in just a few minutes.
2: So, we are here at the Aircraft Interiors Expo. Yes, I just had to look at a sheet of paper to remind myself where I am. We're in Hamburg, Germany, at the annual mega conference that is all things, as you would imagine, aircraft interiors. And I think we were here for episode three of the podcast, I think, give or take last year, where we talked to GoGo. A lot has changed in a year. I think there's a lot of vendors, a lot of new people here, a lot of old faces are changing. And I'm here with Seth Miller. And I am not go go, so that too has also changed. That that also has changed. I I wasn't go go last year either. No, you were never go go. But I'm here with Seth Miller. He has a new site called paxex.aero where he basically writes coherent words about all the things I'm thinking about all the time about aircraft interiors, amenities, connectivity, in-seat power, and all that stuff. Other people
3: think it too, Jason. You're just the incoherent one.
2: Right. Yeah. I'm very tired, but I'm always tired on this podcast, so (laughs) perfect. So Let's break down the show real quick. We have a list of things that we like, but what's top of your mind?
3: Top of my mind, and it's it's on the list, so that's good news. Is I feel like we spend a lot of time justifiably complaining about how seats are getting tighter,
2: but they're also getting better at but the they're same also time. Getting better,
3: and you know, it's easy to look at the numbers and say, "Oh, I used to get thirty-two inches of pitch, and now I get so 30. On a good airplane, on a good airplane, so that must be an awful experience. And I don't want to sugarcoat and say, "No, no, no, thirty inches is a great experience," but with the newer seats, at least from a space perspective, I think what we're seeing is that your sort of your knee room space, your shin room space, really actually hasn't gone down. I think I think there was a window where it did a little bit yeah. because the seats weren't small enough, but now the slimline seats are actually getting to the point that you are getting some of that knee room and shin room back, and I think. You know, we we sat in in these seats at a number of vendors booths this week at 28 and 29 inches and admittedly only for 3 to 5 minutes at a time
2: yeah i'm not going to sit in a trade show seat for uh, 7 hours right
3: but they're also not supposed to be at that pitch on those flights for 7 hours they're supposed to be on those at that pitch on those flights for 2 hours 3 hours right. maybe 4 i mean in some places it'll be there's going to be airlines that stretch They'll it stretch. but there's airlines that stretch things all the time now too. What I think we ended up with though is that it's not
2: quite as awful as it used to be. Right. So This has been a trend we've been seeing at the show for a number of years is that you had some smaller entrants to the market who were really innovating, bringing seats that were more livable at tighter pitches, which kind of forced the big incumbents to get their act together and offer something new and improved. And now we're really, we've are we been seeing it for a couple of years, but now it really seems like it's really taking hold.
3: Yeah. And so, I mean, some of the vendors, we, Mirus is installing on AirAsia. They're actually finally flying now. They've got a few, handful of airplanes installed. And we've talked about these seats. I'm sure we talked about it last year. You should have. We, we've talked about them a lot over the years. They're going to be on 300-ish AirAsia planes going forward. We sat in the 29 today, or maybe the 28. 28 or 29. I we don't sat remember in what I think. And it was the gentleman showing us around at 6'2, and he sat down and his knees hit the seat in front of us. You at one ish had like a half inch gap, and me at 5'11 ish had a, like a two inch gap. Is it great? No. No. But at a 29, 28 inch pitch, like it, I didn't have my knees in my chin. Right. And, you know, and their seat. Through some interesting design and some work they've done, is actually reasonably well padded and pretty comfortable for being a short haul, not supposed to be the most luxurious product ever seat. They also have a long haul version that's way more padded and. But narrower. A little narrower because that's the aircraft type. AirAsia does nine abreast on their A330s. And it's only about
2: uh, 16.9, 17 inches wide. And 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 we felt each other's shoulders. It was not ideal. We rubbed elbows, so to speak. That was not great. But again, the pitch portion
3: of it, which is usually where people are complaining, wasn't awful. The padding, the new layout, the new design they have for this a little more padding on their long haul version than on the short haul because it's longer flights was reasonable. Yeah. I'm not going to say any of these are, you know, barco loungers. None of this is going to be the super crazy padded whatever we had in the 70s, but oil costs more. And they even, took, they even left, took away so. their
2: retro seats that they had on display. So even those are gone from the booth.
3: That's true. That was Ricaro. Sorry, that was Rockwell that was, Collins. Rockwell Co- no, that was uh that was, Recaro. It was Recaro. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So but we sat in the ricaro new product, th- twenty nine inch pitch, and I reclined into you the, and it was awkward. Uh, the
2: the BL thirty something something. Yeah, I will no one will ever know. Pick some
3: numbers, throw some letters on it, maybe
2: it's Boom. a Nokia Phone. There you go.
3: You know, no it's they sold a bunch of them. So, you know, we should probably pay attention to that a little bit. But it's, again, we sat in that pit seat. We, I think we sat in the 29. Yeah. Um, I reclined into you. I think the seat shouldn't recline that much on a short-haul flight.
2: Yeah, no, the, the recline on that seat was way too much. But if you put it towards
3: up to a lower recline level, it actually would have been reasonable. Yeah. Again, you're not going to use a laptop on that. Depending on the airline, there may be a tablet holder that could
2: work. Yeah, you know That got a lot of response on Twitter is, oh my God, I won't be able to use my, my laptop in economy with these seats. You haven't been able to use your, your laptop that? in economy for, for a decade at this point. I'm,
3: I would argue you probably never could if you had anything bigger than like an 11 or 12 inch laptop. Right. But
2: these pipe dreams of people who are trying to, to work on their laptops in economy, that's why Economy Plus exists on airlines that offer it and most do. So in economy, just stop dreaming about using your laptop. It's not something that's going to happen anymore. But, you know, I think
3: with a tablet holder and whatnot, on some of these, you get some benefit. Again, it depends on the airline if they put a tablet holder in the seat or not. Right. depends on the airline if they put power in the seat or not, all of those things. But it can be done. It's not the worst in the world. And again, we we did it there. We did it at Maris, like we said. Who else have we sat in? We sat in Uh, Rockwell. Rockwell Collins, which used to be BE, a space they've rebranded for this year. And we sat in their 29-inch and 30-inch seats. They're all quite livable these days, and even with them, we actually sat in the new long haul Aspire product, yeah, uh, which United is going to have delivered on its seven seven twos later this year, if I remember correctly. Later this week, apparently, is it on that aircraft? I believe so. Okay, so very soon, maybe already be in service by the time you listen to this. That's podcast. true. You know, that was actually a pretty nice long haul seat, and we sat in that pitched at. 29 or 30, I yeah. think. And United will
2: probably do 30 to 31.
3: And it was, I don't want to say luxurious, but it was damn close. That yeah, was
2: nice. Speaking of nice things, let's talk about cookies.
3: You want to go straight there? I,
2: I, I'm jumping to the bottom of the list. I want to talk about cookies. Cookies are delicious. Cookies are delicious. You know what and makes cookies even better? What? Being warm. Yeah. So Rockwell Collins, who used to be BE Aerospace, who will soon become UTC or whatever. There's a lot of name changing, switching around going on here. But they have this new technology where they can build into the side of a galley, a heating, what do they call it? It's, I forget the technical term. I'll have to look it up. But it's basically a tiny chip.
3: It's that, a su- like a superconductor. It's a
2: superconductor chip. They have a special name for it that they, they put in the edge of the side of the galley insert and it can either heat or cool passively without refrigeration or anything.
3: It's a much lower amount of electricity consumed right? and
2: no fans. right? So and they so don't need large refrigeration units or anything, but what, what they did to demonstrate was basically a self-serve cookie station. So they envision – The flight attendants would bake cookies, but then they'd put them right. in this cookie in warmer. In this warming thing. So you could just walk up, grab a hot, fresh-baked cookie. And they actually had hot, fresh-baked cookies on the stand. You could, At
3: 8.30 in the morning, it was could, spectacular. And it
2: was a great breakfast, part of any
3: nutritional breakfast. Yeah. I'm disappointed that they didn't open the chilled champagne bottles that were directly below the cookies. Because if next you're going to do Breakfast of Champions, you kind of got to- Chocolate gotta, of cookies and champagne. And it's the Peltier effect, P-E-L-T-I-E-R. Thank you. Yeah. And it's, it's a neat thing. It's basically like a six-inch deep unit. So it's relatively small. It can bolt onto the side of a galley that already exists so the airlines can- added on without ruin you know, without decreasing flight attendant access, without really getting in the way of people going to the lab. It's it's one of these things, it's like, this is an add on that yes, it costs some money, has some weight, there's all these things associated with it, but for the airlines that actually want to really be nice to their passengers, it's available today and it's really cool and like this the way this the cooling and the heating works, you know, I maybe it stops being uh, champagne bottles, I was lobbying for ice cream sundae self-serve bar to yeah. get a little messy. I,
2: I could see the cookie situation being a problem. If they bake a batch of a, a dozen cookies, they put it in the warmer, Everyone's going to smell it and get up and run to the galley to yep. try to get a yep.
3: cookie. Remember, no loitering or queuing in the galley or lavatory That's areas. right. It's safety regulations or That's right,
2: some such nonsense.
3: But yeah, I, I agree with you that that was definitely very cool, very, very cool. Outside um, of the box. Thank outside you. of the box. And It's
2: just like this little half-inch by half-inch chip that produces heat and Uh, Coolness—I don't even know—but cold. But it was very interesting. Creates heat and sucks it away from you, basically. Um, Sucker instead of a cooler. Yeah. So now I'm going to the middle of the list here. The Airbus Zodiac lower berth bunk bed thing. Lower. Storage bin, something. something lower, it, lower human storage receptacle.
3: Yeah, so you know, we, we got that whole joke that humans are self loading cargo, they really can be self loading cargo now. And the theory here is from Airbus and sort of the industry across the board is that the cargo is down, cargo shipping or shipments, cargo shipping is not down, but capacity in dedicated cargo wide body fleets is up, right? You got you know, 748s, Qatar Airways just bought a bunch. They actually, during the show, announced an order for five more 777 freighters. And, you know, it's really interesting to see how that capacity is growing. But what that means is airlines that depended, that, are, that are passenger airlines that used to depend on filling the belly with cargo on a lot of routes, they're starting to see that uh, revenue wane. Empty space. Empty space. So how do they start to recoup some of the... Revenue now that they're missing because of this, and they've got all these empty bin spaces down below. And so, rather than putting those giant LD threes or whatever bins filled with bags below or cargo, the idea is that they can put sort of semi-permanent install these things and put bunk beds or a movie studio or a bar or any a playground. But bunk beds is really the thing that's going yeah. To sell th- it.
2: You're not going to see a movie studio or or an office type thing down there. I don't think unless it's a a business jet of some sort, but bunk beds. I mean, some of these flights that that the industry is doing now—now now Qantas, Perth to London—they want to do Sydney to New York nonstop. These are seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty-hour flights. If I'm in economy, I would pay good money to go down to one of these things and basically take a nap on an actual bed. Yeah.
3: Now listen. I don't think that there's anyone out there you'll find flying an economy on an ultra long haul flight that says, No, I don't really want to bed for a couple hours. If they said that, they'd be lying. Most likely. And so there'll be plenty of people demanding them. There are a bajillion reasons this won't work. There's a couple reasons it will also, potentially. But there's a lot, a lot of justified skepticism in the industry, justified skepticism around whether these will really fly or not, starting with. There's not that much ceiling height downstairs. Right.
2: It's only what? 1.6 meters. yeah, which, Because
3: it's uh, semi-permanent. If they install it permanently, which they're not even more do. permanently, yeah. they're not going to do that. But on the 330s, Thomas Cook has done this. They put the labs downstairs. On the 340, uh, 346, Lufthansa has put their labs downstairs. Yep, Those are full height. Those you can make work. There's something about with like the rail kits and everything else installed, the cargo bins that would have these kits are smaller. so. Will it work if you have to go downstairs and then like hunch over to get all the way to a bunk? Mm,
2: That's going to be challenging. Yeah. If
3: like, there's evacuation questions, there's, there's a lot of questions about whether this is legit or not. And let's not forget that the fly transpose that was part of the Airbus Silicon Valley thing was basically this but for the upper deck, right? just disbanded because it was never going to fly.
2: Right. But upper deck but, is a big, Upper deck big is difference. a big,
3: bigger difference. There's a big difference between upper deck and lower deck. but. You know, the fact that this came out literally like weeks after yeah. Transpose said, ha ha, we're done. Just, thanks, just thanks for kidding. Along, raises additional questions in my mind. I think it's a great concept to talk about. It's obviously something I want desperately. And I think it's good that some people are talking about ways to continue moving the industry forward in unique and challenging ways that can increase revenue for the airline, can increase passenger comfort, can not screw things up too much. Right. But it's still unclear that we're actually going to get there. Yeah. I won't, you know, this isn't Skyrider that I'm gonna out, go out of my way in the saddle seat thing that I'm gonna go out of my way and say this will never fly.
2: But And I'm we pretty see skeptical. plenty of that at this show oh, of course, that we look year. at and say, This will never fly. Why are you here wasting our time? I could see a few of that just from where we're sitting right now. No, don't name names. I'm not well, gonna name names, I already screwed but... up and named one, so. <laughs> and let's talk about that really, really briefly. EAN is the European Aviation Network, which is basically Europe's answer to GoGo's air to ground network. It's a network that doesn't rely on, well, technically doesn't rely on satellites. We we could talk
3: about that real quick. Yeah, they acknowledge that they could run the whole thing off of the ground. I mean, they've been saying that for a while now, but
2: they're not they're, supposed to. They, well, they're, they're not supposed to run it that way. right? Whether they can, supposed to say it or not, who knows? So they have a couple hundred cell sites spaced all throughout EU and, uh, member countries, as well as Norway and... The Balkans. The, oh, the, no, sorry,
3: no. the EU is... It's EU plus Norway, Sweden, that's and I don't know if Iceland's included. Or not Iceland. Uh, England, yeah. UK? No, that's, they're, they're still talking about the EU. Iceland is not a EU, but is
2: Schengen. I don't know. They're not in it Anyway, basically, they have a bunch of ground networks with equipment that points up instead of down at people, and it's an LTE-based network, and it's being installed right now on IAG member airlines. So that's BA, Welling, Iberia. And it, we've been hearing about it for years, but it seems like we're finally ready to see some actual competition when it comes to Wi-Fi on European short haul. And we got to go up to uh, one of the towers here in Hamburg, sort of. There's a, a big, huge tower, the, the, the Hertz. The it's the named Hertz. Mr.
3: Hertz, the gentleman who you know
2: discovered or de- had a huge uh, part in developing electricity and alternating currents. There you go. And we went up to the top of the tower, saw some of the equipment, uh, Nokia's 5G equipment. We weren't allowed to take any pictures because apparently it's super secret. But that was cool. They have a, a couple hundred of those throughout Europe and they're finally launching.
3: Yeah. So that'll finally go live. I mean, they've got some hardware installed on roughly 100 aircraft. We can't get a confirmation of an exact number and it's, you know. But no one's smacked us around for saying about 100. So we think we're pretty close there.
2: So lastly, this is actually the last thing we saw at day two of three of the show was Lufthansa Systems Board Connect portable IFE system, which is basically a streaming entertainment and and shopping system that works over Wi-Fi that they more or less just put in an overhead bin and close the bin and, and leave it. And that's the extent of the system. They can also plug it into aircraft power, so it can work without having to rely on batteries. But they have this interesting thing that I always wondered how these systems that aren't plugged into the aircraft physically know where they are. Because you go into the portal and you see like the flight map, you see where you are in relation to the world, speed heading and all that. And it looks a lot like flight radar 24, except you don't see all the other aircraft. You just see yours. And I've wondered, how do they get that information? And it turns out they actually use an ADSB receiver in their little board connect package, which is basically what it looks like—a tablet that they just kind yeah, of—it's like a six-inch tablet rub- in some equipment. It's a six-inch
3: tablet that's been you know, rubberized, hardened for sort of more aggressive travel, and then they mount it on another kit so it slides into the this mounting bracket correctly. The mounting bracket has a power port on it so it lasts and whatever, but it also has this ADSB receiver apparently. And I don't know if maybe that's part of the mounting bracket or what, but somewhere on that box, obviously the antennas can be very small. Yeah. But somewhere on that box is a receiver that it doesn't have to be very big because the signal's coming, you know, it's the, the old joke, it's, it's, like little, literally it's, the call is coming from inside the house, right? <laughs> the signal's coming from on board the plane. So the ADSB transmission that's coming off the aircraft gets picked up, among other things, by this box on the plane, and it knows which plane it is, they have some fancy software that helps them figure that out because it also picks up signals from passing aircraft and other things. And they're working on getting that even more reliable. But they literally are transmitting the data to the people on the plane the same as we see it on FR-24.
2: Yeah. Super interesting. I I never really thought about it, but that's hey, a great way to do whatever it. Whatever works. That's a really innovative way to do it. So. And that's about all we got for you here this year. If we see anything really super cool on day three, I'll be sure to, to mention it next time we get around to recording a podcast in about two weeks. But Seth, thank you very much for Pleasure joining. Pleasure as always to be here. Where can we find
3: you? As you said at the beginning of the call, PAX, X P A X E X all about the passenger experience. You need to print up some business cards already. And you know, actually do a business out of this. But hey,
2: yeah. what the hell. That and on Twitter at WanderMe, W-A-N-D-R-M-E. That's it. You had to think about that for a second, didn't you? i like to pause and make sure people understand where the letters are missing. Nice. Well, thanks for joining me and this is probably the part where Ian would like me to toss it back to him in some sort of transition way, but back Sweet. to you, Ian. Yeah. Off to
0: Ian. Bye. <laughs> Jason and Seth sound like they're having quite a bit of fun in Hamburg and, and hopefully... Way too much fun. Exactly. And so hopefully we'll hear more what they're they're still exploring. And so on the next podcast, we'll hear a little bit more about what they got up to and and some of the things that we're, we're actually likely to see on the aircraft. I don't think we're going to see sleeping berths in the cargo hold anytime soon, but the idea is it's, it's an interesting one.
1: I mean, it would be nice. I'm with you, though. I think... Uh evacuation restrictions are going to be the, the biggest problem there.
0: Well, as anyone who has ever seen the movie Air Force One knows, and of course, this is installed on most planes, there's an escape pod. Of course. So why not just have it as an escape pod? No, I'm kidding. No, <laughs> one, no one write in and say, you know, I'm kidding. I was kidding. There are no escape pods on commercial aircraft that we know of. Anyway, at the top of the show, I mentioned that you were a contributing writer for One Way Girl. A uh, professional numbers guy. So we've covered those two. We haven't talked about wildlife photographer and we haven't talked about Avgeek Uber Nerd. And as far as that goes, you did an incredible amount of flying last year in a very short span of time.
1: Yeah. So I think my overall numbers for the year. 're about ninety eight thousand miles, which is not you know consultant is going to go
0: Phew. it's a lot of flying, but you know we're not talking in the two three hundred thousand miles a year, you know flying on Monday flying on Thursday every week. Kind right.
1: Of. The big crunch was that about fifty eight thousand of it occurred in less than ninety days
0: that's a lot of miles and a little bit of yeah time.
1: it was a lot lot, lot of flying that was three trips to Europe, and two trips to Africa via Europe.
0: And I'm assuming that the trips to Africa were for the wildlife photographer portion of your –
1: Well, one was, and the other one was is my capacity as professional numbers guy. Uh Aha. So it was definitely a mix. It got off to a bit of an inauspicious start as my wife and I got – Stuck in London against our will when the big British Airways <laughs> IT meltdown happened.
0: Oh, right, right. In May,
1: which was highly unpleasant, to say the least.
0: That was that was the oops, we unplugged something yes. meltdown.
1: We haven't heard anything about what actually happened. But yeah, it was the oops. Every, all the systems went down, everything. So that was not so fun. I spent way too much time on British Airways 747s.
0: Um, which are are not the the youngest seven four sevens on the block
1: well, I mean, as far as passenger seven four sevens go they are because <laughs> there just aren 't that many of them around anymore well that,
0: okay that 's fair, you know they had some i
1: think the newest ones are like ninety nine nineteen ninety nine deliveries nineteen ninety eight deliveries all almost all the ones I was on have been refurbished with the panasonic i f e which was you know very very much appreciated because the a large portion of British airways fleet has a AVOD, AVOD system, AV on demand system that dates back to, I think, 2002.
0: You can put the, the tapes in. and No, no, no more tapes. Not, not quite that old.
1: <laughs> but it's still like four by three aspect ratio. You know, It's still like an old television. So yeah, there was that. I got to fly on some cool planes that you don't really get to fly on that often. I got to fly a, on a Twin Otter, which I, I love, which are really great planes that you fl- find flying in and out of dirt strips a lot in like Canada You know, rural Canada and Central Africa and Alaska and places like that, where uh, you don't have a lot of paved runways, and they're really powerful and can take off with a very high load and a very short distance. So that was definitely, definitely fun. I loved my little twin Otter ride out to the Masai Mara for the what is the greatest wildlife show on earth, the Great Wildebeest Migration, which was a lot of fun and a lot of wildebeest. They move in large groups. I think I saw like fifty thousand in one afternoon. Once it was pretty insane.
0: We uh, we'll have to put a link in the show notes to some of that. Okay, sounds good.
1: But it's funny. My numbers impulsiveness or or compulsion. I'm not sure which one. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist. But I sort of logged all my flights, and I'd been using a website for a number of years. That all of a sudden, I saw it was now part of flight radar.
0: Aha! How about that? So what you're referring to is is now called My Flight Radar 24. It used to be Flight Diary, and a few years ago, well, last year now, we gave it a little bit of love and upgrade, and added some more um, kind of more power to the statistics computation, and and gave it a facelift and, and things like that, and, and brought it under the the Flight Radar 24 four envelope. But yeah, no, it's it's a great site. I think for anyone who's interested in in numbers behind flying, but who also just wants to keep track of of where you're going and, and things like that, I use it to keep my family members happy when I'm flying somewhere. So I'll go be on the plane and, and I, you know, automatically send, I, I don't have to do anything. So if the plane doesn't have Wi-Fi I don't have to worry about it, but I'll punch in the flight number beforehand. And then it automatically sends a, you know, a Facebook message or, or a tweet or something like that says, you know, I'm, I'm taking off, I'm, I'm going. And then you can also send one that says I landed because uh, I formally would get yelled at, you know, I've, I have no idea where you are. And so this makes it very easy so yeah it, it's a lot of fun and and I think we added some cool graphics to to give you a sense of you know what you're flying, how you're flying there, and you can download a, a route map that kind of shows you where you've been over the year or years and depending on how long you've been using the the service
1: I'm looking at my profile now, and I am at one million two hundred and six thousand three hundred and twenty five miles
0: There you go. And how many? How would the distance to the moon? I guess is the five five point oh five
1: times. You're to there the, and back. <laughs> a few times. Oh, well, no, I'm j- I'm just there. I need I need I need to you know log another. You know, half time. <laughs> yeah,
0: you're stuck on the moon right now. That's the, that's a fair point.
1: Exactly. Although it, 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 what, what's interesting is that it shows like your top aircraft by number of flights and miles. And I'm looking at mine, and over a quarter of those one point two million miles. Have been on seven four seven four hundred.
0: I would say that's unusual for most people. Because I, I think the, the top overall is the 737 family from pure longevity and ubiquity. But I want to go back to the moon for a second and space because I want to close on something that is really cool. The Virgin Galactic VSS Unity, their spaceship two, had its first powered flight last week. And it was really fun to watch because. You can track it on flight radar twenty four and so it's really fun sort well sort we'll get to that part in a second, so white knight two the carrier ship that's basically a giant airplane that carries the spaceship in between two fuselage sections before kind of dropping it, and then v s s unity starts its rocket motors and away it goes. You can track them together, and so you see these you know two icons sitting on top of each other for a little bit and then they separate, and that's always fun to watch. Up until now, they've separated and then they've flown and landed back in the Mojave Desert. Last week, VSS Unity first powered flight hit its rocket motors, pulled up into an 80-degree up-incline flight and hit Mach something. I forget it it was like 1.87 or something like that and went up to 80-some-odd thousand feet. We didn't quite show that on the site. And so I was like, well, that's interesting because we have data, but it, it seemed like it was hitting some sort of ceiling. So I checked with our developers. Our MLAT tracking is designed to track commercial aircraft, which don't fly above eight-tenths the speed of sound, nine-tenths if we're lucky, and certainly don't fly above 60,000 feet. So when we looked at the data, we're like, why are we getting this interesting data? And it turns out that there's some sanity checks that a, a rocket equipped with a Mode S transponder fails, and so the system was like, "This can't happen." You know, you're wrong. It's not doing that. So I, I asked if there was something we could do for the next flight to maybe get a little bit more data, and, and it seems like there might be some work that we can do, but but we'll see if if anything can be done. To, you know,
1: I wonder if you could convince them to put an ADSB
0: transponder in it. That would be nice. I would love to be able to do that and And it's something that I wouldn't say no to, but we talked about this before, I think, in a previous episode where, uh, where it would be cool to, to have an ADSB transponder on on a spaceship. but we'll, we'll get there eventually, I hope, because this is a reusable aircraft, so it's going to have to come back through the national airspace System, and it basically lands on a runway. So hopefully it'll eventually
1: not'll eventually the be works.
0: equipped with with an ADSB transponder, but we'll see all in due time, I guess.
1: So basically, what you're saying is that just like a Tesla, (laughs) Flight Radar 24 has an insanity (laughs) mode.
0: Hopefully, hopefully, one day. Gavin, I want to thank you so much for joining us, especially for your numerical insight. I think a lot of our listeners, not a lot, but more than a few, have written in saying, you know, let's, you know, get into the weeds a little bit more on numbers and things like that. And so you've been a very, very welcome addition to our insights about what's going on in the, the commercial aircraft space. And I always like hearing about your travels because there are just so many of them. So thanks for joining us and hopefully we can have you back on, on a, a future episode.
1: Thank you for having me. Hopefully we
0: can send Jason to Germany more frequently. Well, I mean, we can send him somewhere. <laughs> I am Ian Pechnik here with Gavin Werbler for the first time and hopefully not the last. Jason will be back next episode from Germany, we hope, and we'll talk to you then. Thanks so much for listening.